Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Johan Sluz. Johan Sluz, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Excited to be here. Whereabouts are you based right now, Johan? Where are you sitting in the world? I'm based in a small village called Lisse, which is at the western side of Holland, at the coast side between Haarlem and Leiden. It's the area where they grow the flowers in Holland. They, we just had weeks and weeks of tulips and, and daffodils, etc. right in front of us. Yeah, interesting. I, I want to talk to you more a little bit about that, about, about the Netherlands, because the country fascinates me, but we'll get there later on. Tell me about where you grew up and talk to me a little bit about what that childhood was like for you. Yeah, sure. I think about growing up, I grew up in this area and my father always had his own business, a printing business, situated right behind our house. Literally, my father would walk out of the house in the morning and you could see him going into his business in the backyard, which, you know, yeah, that's, I think that had a huge influence on the way I developed being part of a business, always there to help out and to work mm. whenever there's time off, try to make an extra bit of money, but also seeing the business grow and seeing what's happening inside the business and my father managing whatever. It was not, not a big company, it's 25, 25 people more or less. But for a printing business, that's quite significant, especially in the silk screen section. So it's producing stickers, just B2B. So a lot of things came together there. So he quickly developed a model where he would not deliver to end consumers. He would only deliver to, to other businesses, basically other printing companies that would have a whole arena of other products like labels for, for products or printing magazines. And then they would sell as a part of their offerings also stickers. And he would just supply that little part of their business. So he could quickly expand by just adding more resellers, basically, rather than the hassle of selling to consumers or That's end users. Yeah. So he yeah. was one of the early adopters of the distribution model. I would say so, yeah. I don't think he ever really gave it much thought. He just he's mm. not a natural seller himself. He just doesn't want to have the hassle of dealing with end consumers that will complain about stuff and whatever. And he quickly realized if I sell to through other companies, that's off my desk. That's with others. I just focus on delivering a quality product and developing a logistics that would mean that he could just order the stickers with me. He would deliver the stickers straight to the end customer with labels of the reseller. And that's the way it started working. And it's still to date, it's quite a unique concept within this industry. It sounds so easy, like everyone is doing it now, right? Amazon will sell and you get the product delivered, not by Amazon or maybe by Amazon, but who mm. you buy it from, etc. Mm. So it's, but this is 50 years ago that he set this up and it's still working brilliantly today. Tell me about some of the, his best traits and characteristics that you've inherited. It's a good question. I, uh, I've been in a six month coaching, coaching session with actually with a lady in the village here. And she asked me about things that have influenced me and I think there's two things that, that I learned from him and that I still actively practice to date. And one of them is 
always, always be positive. And uh, I, I just explained to you that we had a reorg in, in the company I worked for. And so I just was being made redundant. And, uh, and people ask me, why are you optimistic? So because I always learned that one, if things fall down, he was like, I have my own company. If that, whatever reason, it doesn't work anymore. And I have to restart in no matter what kind of job. Bottom of the, in bottom sounds almost snobby, but you know, it's like, you, whatever, you have to start picking up bins from the street and not that's not a good job, but something completely different out of this world is that six months later, I'm sure I'll be driving the truck, picking up the bins. And six months after, I'll be managing the team of truck drivers going through the streets. So he just has this kind of positive outlook always that he will be fine. He'll get there no matter what. And yeah, I, I stick to that myself. Right? It's what's the worst that can happen. I see... I think attached to that is the discussion that I had yesterday with this coach is you see a lot of people nowadays and after the past five, six or 10 years, people started earning buckets of money, right? Salaries are always more uh, somewhere else, more and more money. And they get stuck to the idea that money represents who they are and their status. And, and they get so attached to it that they forget about themselves. Yeah. And, you know, what, what you can bring to the world is not... It's just not the money that you make, but it's the impact that you have on people or whatever. I think uh, that's an important one. And the other one is that he never worked more than eight hours. He would walk out of the company eight o'clock in the morning, or out of the house, at five o'clock he would be back. And one of his principles was, I will always have dinner with my kids and my wife. And he would, every day we had dinner with my father, always. I, I, I don't know anything better than six o'clock in Holland, six o'clock dinner time and my father is there but he would be there from five o'clock and he would play with us or spend time with us and this was so important to him and that's this is something like that i try to stick to as much as possible still to date right? i always have dinner with the kids and I spend time with them and spend time with my wife because it's so precious this little time that you have and if, even now or even more so now in a time that we mostly work remote i've been working remote for the past three years and, and it makes you realize that before you would go out of the house seven o'clock, drop the kids quickly, right, run. And with a bit of luck, you're home seven o'clock in the evening. I, I used to live in Dublin and I used to spend an hour commuting back to, to home and you'd be home at seven o'clock, rush and fix dinner. And how much time do you have left to see the kids? Like literally nothing, yeah. an hour at best. Yeah. And then we had to go to bed and whatever. And now we have a little bit more time and, it's, and you realize even more how precious that time is to spend with, with the people you like being with. And how important that it is over any job or over any salary that they would hang in front of you, in my view at least, right? Mm. It's not that I say that other people are doing the wrong thing. It's just very important to me. And I really got that from my father. And I still appreciate him for it, for always yeah. being there. They're two wonderful gifts. Uh, it's easy just to say, here's two things that I know about or I remember, but they're incredibly powerful. One is the power of optimism. So many people I find are worse... When it comes to what could happen, it's, it's almost they catastrophize situations rather than mm. saying, what's the worst thing that can happen? Can I live with that? What will I do? And just been eternally optimistic. If you bring value, you're always going to be fine. It really is. It's easy to say, but if it doesn't live in, inside you, it's hard to... And it lives inside you because you absorbed it over time. Yep. You can't read it. it 100%. I think, yeah. Paul, that's one thing. It's seeing other people struggle with it. And if you figure out what the context yeah. is, so not saying, oh, you're such a, you're so negative. Yeah. If you talk to them and you figure out why they have that outlook, you often find out that their, that their parents were scared, right? They have yeah. this fearful view on life or whatever. Yeah. So it, I'm very fortunate that I have this, that I have this upbringing with somebody who's very optimistic yeah. and, and never worries about 
his company. So it's once you're younger and inside the company and you hear the people in the company, the people you know, at, the, at the factory machines complaining, ah, oh, your father, is mm. whatever, his father, he, his life is easy, right? He makes good money as a business owner. Mm. They don't see the risks that he's carrying. They don't see the fact that mm. he is actually providing that business and, and people are able mm. to work there, providing them again mm. a life, a life, and etc. And they all think it's easy, but it comes with so many risks and responsibility. Yeah. And, and these are things that I learned as well, watching what's happening in that business. But going back to that being optimistic, yeah, I totally get it if people don't have it. And it's, you see it every day around you, like in life, in business, people working for you. And, and I'm fortunate, I see that as a responsibility for myself as well. I have it. And I, it's not like, it's a gift. It's, and I, it really I is. treasure it as a gift. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, se- the second one you mentioned, Johan, which is the time spent with you, I think that's, that is the other side of that same coin. Because if he was worried about, if he wasn't an optimistic nature, and he'd be worried, oh, I need to stay at work, I need to show up, I need to be there in case, he wouldn't have had that time. And so without no. one, it's very hard to find the other. And I think so many people give up that precious time chasing this crazy dream of what they call a career And we see so easily, and you spoke about this earlier, is how quickly, just like that, a company will let you go and they do not care. And all of that time that you sacrificed for them at the expense of the things that are really important is, yeah, I think if we could just grasp more of that and say, job number one, spend time with loved ones because they're not going to be here forever. They're not going to be here. Or yeah, you're not going to be here for them. Exactly. Yeah. Now that the thing, I think, and I think time is a really interesting point of discussion now more than ever, with some, the sudden rise of AI and all the advantages that it claims to have, and it does have, right? It can automate so many things that it's truly scary. But it brings back the hundred-year-old discussion that we always thought that automating stuff will bring back time to people. It doesn't. Yeah. It just increases productivity of people. And, we, and you see so many posts on LinkedIn now, ah, oh, it's so great, we can focus on the more important stuff and we can focus on... No, it's all aimed at more productivity. So doing, look at how we did our jobs 10, 15 years ago and how productive we are now. It's just business is taking advantage of that. It's not us getting more time. It's almost ridiculous. You would hope that AI would bring time to people, but I know it won't. We'll still be working 40 hours a week or more if you choose to, instead of... Having it as a tool that provides us all the ability to spend more time with each other. That's a really um, profound and, 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 and yeah. Getting away from all those burnouts and, and all yeah. the stuff that, that comes with it. That's worth actually, you know what, I've got to highlight that, Johan, because that is actually a really profound insight. And, and you're 100% right. I don't think people have stopped enough to look at this because you're right. There's an, You mentioned excitement and fear in, in the same sentence about AI. And mm. there is an excitement about, oh, look what I can do, look what I do. And that's, I remember the excitement around email when that came in as a productivity tool and yeah. how it could yeah. save me time and the company's getting excited. About it. But then it, it actually intruded into our everyday life because it's now in our pockets. And I think AI, if we're not really careful. And I, oh. Talk to me. You mentioned excitement and I think you use the word scary in the same sentence. Which is it for you? I think you need to choose for excitement and deliberately be intentional about it and it's because it's not going to go away. It's going to be part of our lives and there's, everybody can see the advantages to it. I'm using it myself now almost on a daily basis in the sense that it's almost like a, a second opinion with a doctor, right? You have your own ideas and you check it to mm. see is the structure of my thinking 
in line with the information that's out there. And I love it for that, right? Mm. Because it also makes you realize that no matter what's coming back now, if you bring it back into your own business or the business you work for or whatever you use it for, you need to make it your own. You need to add that human factor to whatever happening. And this is separate from the use of AI for stuff that I believe in that should have, even 20 years ago when they started developing speech technology, right? So there was companies that had speech recognition and were like, oh my God, from now on, we can just talk to our computer and we can write, instead of typing, we can just talk and it will be 20 years ago. This is 20 years ago. None of these companies survived and, mm. and it's still, it's not a part of our business as such. However, uh, I always say, if you call a call center and you just ask for practical information, if that can be replaced by a form of AI, for me, any day, any day, right? I feel sorry for the people sitting there because I never know the real answer. And all I want is a theory, like something that is easily brought up by technology. It's not rocket science I'm asking for. It's an answer to my question. And if that is helping us to make our lives a little bit easier, happy days. And it's like any automation that took place over the past hundred years, it will be a fixed part of our lives, whether we want it or not. And a lot of it will be beneficial. Will there be downsides to it? Will there be pain because of it? Because people will lose their job? Yes. We will go through again through a phase where we see that happening and people need to find other directions. Like the only thing that, so I'm not, it's not fear that's part of the way I look at it. It's more how will we make that transition one that's positive and how can we ever come to a point that there was a lot of posts on LinkedIn lately around companies that choose for a four-day work week. That's the other side of the coin. Eh? If you talk about the other side of the coin that you would like to see happening as well. So make it something that's worthwhile for everyone so we can also see the true benefits of it. I think my coach asked me yesterday, wow, so what do you have in mind? And like, well, one of the things that I can do is consultancy. So consultancy, I think that that's also a lot of hours. I said, no, the principle for me of consultancy is that you do as little as possible for the highest amount of money being paid for now that sounds oh my god you're arrogant and whatever no it's because if you can focus on that bit of expertise and understanding and knowledge that you have from all those years of working in a lot of companies and you make that available to a company it needs to be brought into a short amount of time and a small package for a big number because that that creates the most value for the company you're working for it's not sitting there. I, oh, I, you can have me for eight hours a day for two weeks and I'll help your company be more successful. That's rubbish. That's just rubbish. But it's not an easy one to sell to companies to say, oh, you're going to just spend an hour with me and you're going to pay top dollars for that. What? Just for Yeah, because they give you some insights that will make your company go in a different direction. So, yeah, that's the kind of, that's, that's my thinking. Yeah, that reminds me of... Uh, Stop me if you've heard the story. It's more of a parable of yeah. the giant ship that broke down and they call this engine. They tried to repair the engine and they just couldn't get it. The ship is sitting there in the middle of the ocean and they fly this engineer out who knew this engine well. And he comes in and he puts his ear to the engine. And he taps it with a hammer in a certain spot and the engine springs back into life. And then he sends through his invoice and the invoice is like something like 10,000 euros, right? And they said, this is outrageous. How can you do that? He said, break this down. And he goes, okay, 9,999. Sorry, one euro for tapping. 9,999 9, for knowing where to tap, right? Yeah. 
100%. And I, that sounds to me like what you're talking about. Tell me on that then, where have you come to any conclusions on where you would apply the expertise? Where's the lever for you? I think it's literally, so having spent over 10 years in Dublin, right, in the time that there so many companies landed in, in Dublin and set up their international or their international office or EMEA office in most cases, so usually American or US-based companies. And I think what I would probably say, and I would love to hear it from you as well, Paul, but I think the majority falling into the same traps all the time and time again. I think there's probably two reasons for that. One, they all of they all follow the SaaS blueprint how to set up a company, right? It, it, these are like often young companies with young owners, and they literally. I'm not saying they have no clue because they're super smart people, but of course, for everyone, it's a huge challenge to set up, to grow your business, and to set up international offices and to manage that and to get the best results out of that. And they will all warn you that Europe is not the same as trying to get into the US or whatever. And still, they all make the same mistakes, right? And still, they they regard Europe as one and or maybe not as one, but uh, look, how different can it be? They will set up massive teams, probably not hiring the right talent. So I, I always think, coming back to, now in, in a couple of hours, I know that in a couple of hours, I can help a lot of companies rethink that the whole process of how they do it and why they should do it in a different way. And I think that, and that's, that's not necessarily just experience. Mm. I think experience is still uh, the, the, the big trap for a lot of people, maybe even in sales, even more so. Because in sales, there's nobody telling you to ever do more training, right? If you're a surgeon, you do constant training. If you're an electrician, you do constant training. If you're anything else, you're constantly busy with making sure you're up to date. And with sales, it's often just, oh, I have 15, I have 20 years of experience in sales. I know my stuff. I think the only way to keep yourself at the top of your game and to be valuable to companies is to constantly learn, right? Yes, there's no choice. And I don't necessarily mean, I know you've been in center training. And I don't mean necessarily doing center training all the time. It's just really understanding what's happening in your business, what's happening with sales, why is it changing, what dynamics are changing, how do I need to make sure that I understand how to run my teams in that changing environment. The customers are asking for different stuff. And I love that aspect. And if you, if you lean on your experience, or if you think that experience as a company is what you buy and then will save your company or will bring your company to the next level, it's the example of so many scale-ups hiring big hotshots from SAP or from whatever company or Oracle, right? It's always the same names. And then, oh yeah, let's make that guy the new head of sales or CRO or whatever, because he is experienced with all that uh, stuff, bringing a company from 100 million to, to one, 2 billion or whatever. Those guys are just, they're just small instruments in that big story of that company growing, which means that they don't necessarily understand the dynamics of that smaller company and how important it is to, to hire, to understand the profile of people, of salespeople that you need to be successful. And the go-to-market model, how is it, does it align to your sales strategy? Is it aligned at all? And do we understand that if we just hire 50 people in six months' time, because that's what the company wants, right? 50, mm. 50 seats need to be filled in six months' time, that you actually hire 40 people that are just not capable of doing your job. It's going to take you two years to even get them to mediocre level, which is just a complete waste of time. All those little things, right? Yeah, I think that's... That's a broad range of topics. 
It's a broad range of topics, but again, mm. it's easily, it's easily spot. It's like when you came in the example of the guy flying into the, to the cruise ship just to tap, it could have well been whatever, a person sitting there saying, have you actually checked the little bit of electricity cord by the start button of the engine? Yeah. Have you checked that part? Oh no, shit, no one looked at that. Yeah. Bomb, and it starts. Yeah. It's, it, it, I think people, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, in, in terms of what you were talking about, the consulting side as well, particularly, I think there's so many challenges. You, you mentioned startups. My experience with startups is be, to get through that gravitational pull of getting off the ground, you require a huge amount of exuberance. I won't say hubris, that's probably too strong, but exuberance and be, self-belief. Yeah. And I think that those companies, certainly in the first six months, maybe even up to the first two years, are probably not good targets because they believe they know it all. They have it all. They haven't experienced. They haven't run into the wall. They haven't run into the fist, the punch, or whatever it is that's going to hit them and take them back. And so trying to uncover pain and, and help them discover that they need help. And in, in, in those early days, forget it. I also think if you're looking at American companies coming in, to Europe, certainly into Ireland. I can't talk about outside of Ireland, but you have all the government agencies promising them everything. Right. And that, that's another thing. But I think what you said about the helping people navigate through the rapidly changing landscape of sales and sales leadership particularly, I think that's a real open goal because there's tons of companies out there. And you mentioned I was a Sander franchise for 20 years. I... I let my license expire there back in February. But there's a lot of companies like that. And so sales get tons and tons of, you think. That's another story, whether it's the right stuff or the real issue with that is how it's delivered, which I think AI is going to change rapidly. But I think the leadership side of things, nobody teaches people really how to find their inner leader. Sorry, that's not true. Mm. That's not saying nobody. But it's very... In my experience, few leaders get access to the good stuff that is out there. And it's almost like you were a good rep. Here's your promotion. Off you go. We believe in you. And mm. then you realize that everything that made you good as a rep is not going to serve you well as a leader. And, mm. But I think there's something in that for sure. I also think, I, I don't know how, whether you've done anything with, say, AI around the consulting and training side. It's great for things like, say, frameworks and documents and proposals, all that kind of stuff, yeah, 100%. Where, where it is so powerful. And I'm excited, by the way, because I discovered a new plugin this morning. I put up a post on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. I did a role play. So I asked it to role play with me as a buyer. And I was, my jaw hit the table, how realistic it was. The downside to it was I was typing and, it, and I was reading. So it gave me time to think, which is not a bad thing either, because sometimes role play as we practice it is too fast for us to absorb it. And we miss the nuance. Whereas if you have to think about your response, you're embedding it in. But there's now, I, I came across, I think a Talkberry, it's called. It's a voice interface for Chrome. So you can speak in, you can speak to, to say, ChatGPT, and it can then respond back. Again, it won't be as nuanced as real life role play, but it would be pretty damn close because it, I found it really testing 
it really pushed and you, and I know there's a lot more to play with it like playing with a red type personality who's having a bad day for example or a right. detail oriented person who's really picky the kind of tough prospects we run into and where traditional sales training fails not it's and it's not its fault is where you get everybody in a room together and you cram in two or three days and you remember that much because there's only that much that's relevant to you in that moment or what they'll do is and you know this from your experience is they'll ra- they'll cram in all this training as part of their onboarding process and uh, sorry that's my phone so one, sorry one second yep I just know that would I probably could have taken it out in post, but it was just distracting me. And I was sorry. What was I talking about? The, the sorry, the the training side of things nah. is that it is all crammed in. It's not even relevant because onboarding people, you haven't really run into the problems of the job, the objections, the sit, the, the prospects, the pains, the issues, and you're trying to cram it all in up front, and it just doesn't work. Whereas with AI, AI, you can deliver it exactly as you need it. You know that you're probably like me with this. If you're at home and you want to put it, you, you want to fix an object in your house. And it could be the most obscure item on the planet. You go onto YouTube and you'll find somebody else who's done a little tutorial on how to fix or install that particular version of that object. And I think we can do this exact same with AI, we can... I would, I would hope so. And yeah. I think I've been in the learning, e-learning business now for the past five, six years. And mm. that's going to have a massive impact on the way people learn. And a lot of companies are now struggling. Right, so how are we going to deal with that? And they need to bring it into their business, right? There's no choice. They need to bring that in. Because now you, you can say to your AI, okay, so I have a sales force of 75 people and I've done a kind of a skill assessment and I want to figure out more. So you can actually let them design like a, a kind of a, a training program on aspects that you want to do. And the next step to your point is that AI can then deliver it in a more individual way because it can be adaptive. And mm. adaptive means that, huh? so I just went through very painful sender training because what happened was it's being rolled out in the company. Everyone has to do the same training, whether you're the 25-year-old who just joined or the 50-year-old, whatever, director of sales, you all go through the same program. And that's just not a pleasant experience, right? Yeah. Because you, got, you have to spend all those time going through the modules and then there's a the life aspect and then the modules and then the life aspect, massive amounts of time. So the adoptive side of things is going to be a massive improvement for a learning experience. Mm. I think it, it also, talking about the topic of sales training, which like I said, I'm a huge fan of role plays and I've been already trying to figure out, much like yourself, how can you do role play with AI to the level that you say it might not be as good as live role play. The reality is that if I do role play with, with my teams, it's me being the, bu- the purchaser, the buyer. That, and that's not always very nuanced either, right? It's, it, I could be in the X or Y mood and not, not really getting into it or not really being difficult. Or I So I adjust to the person in front of me where I, I won't adjust. They will just act and do it with a lot of advantages to that as well. So I think in the balance, it's just going to be a tremendous tool for sellers to practice themselves without any fear, without any whatever, but yeah. at high at a high level. Yeah. But even more so around sales training is that 
once once you are in e-learning and you see what learning is trying to do for companies, you also realize that training, also sales training, is often used to address a problem that should be fixed in a different way. As, oh, yeah, look at what's happening now, right? The economy is not, maybe not as great as two years ago. A lot of tech companies struggle. Prospecting is a problem at the moment. So what's the first reaction? Let's train people more. Clearly, they're not effective enough in prospecting. So let's introduce more Sendler or let's use the prospecting aspect, the qualifying aspect from Sendler and train them more. We all know that what happened was that over the past 10 years, a lot of sellers came into companies that are actually not sellers at all. These are, if you look, if there's no talent, you take people that, are not, that has no talent or doesn't necessarily want to be in sales. And I, it's never the person. I don't ever yeah. look at blame the person. It's companies hiring people that they should not be hiring and all the walls fall down. There used to be like assessments and are you actually a person that could be a skilled seller? Yes or no? No, that all fell down. Can you speak German? Yes, I can. Great. Can you, see a, B, can you say A, B, C? Yes, I can. Then you're hired and off you go. And you test it and those people probably will do well actually in a time where the products are flying out of the door and it's easy to sell. And now a lot of companies struggle. And now they find out that those people don't, they can't prospect. No, because they never had to. They never did it. They have no experience as, as such. But so everybody needs to go back to the drawing board and say, ah, do we actually really understand what kind of seller we need? Look at any profile that you know, for in Dublin looking for sellers. It's always the same. Well, SaaS experience is what we need. SaaS, SaaS is 10,000 different things. If you are a SaaS seller in IT, you are not a SaaS seller selling a solution in e-learning. It's two different sellers all together. It couldn't be more different, but the label is the same. It's both SaaS seller. We want SaaS experience. So this SaaS IT seller comes to a company like whatever, selling e-learning or a more complex product where the person buying your product doesn't necessarily understand what he's buying. Because somebody in L&D doesn't understand the difference between a Udemy or a Go One where I used to work or... So, where if you're an IT seller, do you think that the person buying the difference doesn't understand the difference between Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud? <laughs> they know a hundred times more than you do, right? Very different sales cycle, very different prospecting. It couldn't be it couldn't be more different. And nevertheless, companies and recruiters alike just they just bring in people with uh, yeah. with what they think on paper is, is similar experience. And here's and the thing: I, I, I understand the idea of people putting a label on something but in, in some respects it's a little bit lazy as well so uh, here's one something I learned I remember and I was again in your country it was a director of a company which will remain nameless and uh, they had a very strong on-premise market and they were moving heavily the strategy was all cloud and they found out very they tried training the sales staff and it said it just wasn't working they weren't able to make the transition and they couldn't understand it. And, but it's, this is where they're just looking for the easy answers is the problem. Because at mm. one level, if you look at the type of individual who's selling on-premise, it's multi-million dollar business. That requires a certain mindset. Also, mm. it's always through the CIO. So the relationships are in one particular silo of the business. So therefore, the language you use and your prospecting awareness it's framed by that. Now you look at cloud and it's subscription-based. It's You have to talk to the sales director, the marketing director, finance. You've talked to multiple different parties. The skill sets required. 
and the mindset and also self-identity. Somebody, I see myself as a multi-billion dollar sales closer. That's a very different mm. mentality to somebody who is, I see myself stealthily navigating my way around an organization, building coalitions, understanding how they work and, put, and bringing all the resources together. Yeah. And that's what they're looking for is that animal. And instead of specifying that, they go, I want somebody with experience in SaaS. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's the mistake. It's, and maybe it's the recruiters don't understand the nuances of why one role is different than the other. So they just go with the easy option and stamp a label on it, which it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. No, I think that, yeah, that's certainly a part of it. And we all know as sales leaders that the sales cycle has changed. When I sold PCs 25 years ago, I had the huge advantage that the person I would talk to would probably know nothing about the PC. Yeah. So I would be the expert. I could just on a very simple spin model or band, I could just ask my qualifying questions. Uh, do you have children? And oh, oh, are you going to make pictures or whatever? So I could whatever, just mm. ask my questions and I could figure out the configure a PC and done. The thing I still love about it is that it was the best lesson in, in my life learned because it was the very basic question that I learned by selling B2C PCs. I think now that we are in a time where people have all the information and we can only address the last bit of the, of the decision-making process, the one thing that you need, maybe even more so than 25 years ago, 25 years ago, you could almost run a list of questions and based on that list of questions, you could come to a point where you would say, so if the PC has this and this and doesn't develop, do we have a deal? Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm. Now you can't run that list anymore. You need to be an expert. You need to be able to challenge. You need to be very quick with your questions. And he goes, okay, so this is actually bringing it to a topic that's another one of my favorites, <laughs> consultative selling. So in the past 10 years, everybody's asking for consultative selling and I'm very much not such a fan of consultative selling because consultative selling done in the wrong way is still running that list of questions like 25 years ago. It's what most sellers do. They, it's an interrogation. Is that the right word in English? Yeah, yeah. It, it feels yeah. like interrogation, which is like rather than a conversation or an interview. It's only in their benefit. It's in the yeah. benefit of seller to answer the question, right? Oh yeah, what are you going to do this? And they think they're trying to help the customer with a problem where you just annoy the customer with open doors, with stuff that you need to know in, answer to, in order to answer your director probably. Do you know the details of the deal? But you don't provide any value. And I always try to say to my team, imagine if you would talk to a CEO. Now, any seller that claims to talk to C-level, never believe them because nowadays most sellers never talk to C-level. That just doesn't happen unless you do a $20 million deal product. But imagine you would talk to a CEO. How much time would you have? 15 minutes, 15 minutes. How many questions can you ask in 15 minutes? Three or four, three or four. Yeah. Those four questions need to be spot on and they need to have an element of, of challenge or letting them see something that they've never heard of before. Otherwise, he's not going to be interested. It's going to solve something that he has not thought about himself or has not heard from his team himself in order to get a trigger to say, ah, we need to act on this. And then yet again, if we talk to a VP of business or a head of whatever, right? And we have this hour meeting because it's set up for an hour. And we think, rub, rub, rub. Now I have my prepared all my questions and we go through it. And at the end of the hour, the person doesn't really, they feel drenched because they were just, they were just answering open door questions 
not getting any value themselves. They know that they're providing value to, yeah. to the seller with their understanding of the business and whatever. And the seller can rub his hands and say, oh, now I have an understand, a good understanding of your business. And I think we can, we can make the product fit to what you need and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And, I, uh, I, but that, that, that's, that's a, that, there's a huge change now. So I yeah. want the sellers that understand that, how yeah. to address that, that little but that's, window. That's not the fault of consultative selling. That's, to me, or the fault of the rep. I think that's the fault of the managers and also sales enablement. Or don't get off blameless on this. And I'll tell you, I have a lot of experience in, in this problem. First of all, I think we forget what it's like to be 24, 25 where a lot of companies are hiring at that age. I remember I, my first job was a programmer in a company in the UK, and I was 23. I was late going to college. And I remember one Friday mid-afternoon, everybody starts walking by me in the office, and my boss said, I was the last one, he says, come on, are you coming? I said, where are we going? He says, to a meeting, just a company meeting, a team meeting. I had never been to a team meeting in my life, and I felt so grown up like this was like to me entering the adult world and I sat around the table it was like I was it, it was a weird experience really was and naive to you you can't believe how naive somebody at that age is and just doesn't understand how the work most not all some people are born with that gift but most don't so that's one thing secondly is that and this is where I have the experience of you go into a company and you can see that, like you said, they're using certain tactics, questioning tactics as a blunt instrument to hammer a prospect with. And they don't understand the nuance of both what conversation needs to reveal itself. Also, depending on the level of the organization, like you said, you get 15 minutes with the CEO, you're not going in there to ask 10, 10 dumb questions. But... They're not given that training. They're not given those scenarios those to role play with. They want training. They want two days of boot camp. And then when you say, what about this and this? No. And I've had this in, in, in some of the top like Fortune 100 companies. No, Paul, no, we don't want all that. We want to get the low-hanging fruit. We want you just to give them the qualification framework, pain funnel, or questioning tactics. I said, yeah, but we need to understand why we're using this. When you ask a question without understanding why you're asking it, then it's just a blunt instrument. Yeah, no, they're fine. We've we got that. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. But you know what? I'll take the money. Thank you. Because if I push back too much, they'll go to somebody else who will promise them what they want to hear rather than what they need. And that's the biggest problem. And if you can solve that one, you have a great business. And maybe that's, oops, sorry, that's an area. But there, I think there's a hubris in companies like we know what we're doing, which is why I'm not always a huge fan of the challenger model because in itself, it, unless it's understood, when it's understood, it's great. When you have a point of view and you're able to tell a story in terms, we, we got to teach a prospect. No, you're not going to teach a prospect anything. You might help them discover something by a carefully chosen story, but to be able to do that and make them feel like it's theirs is a massive skill and they don't spend the time to learn that. That's the problem. Sorry, that's a bit of a rant. It's that's twenty years of fr- <laughs> that's twenty years of frustration, Johan. Now that I'm out of the game and it's just pouring out of me, but it's there. And here, one of the reasons why I didn't renew nothing to do with Sandler. They're a wonderful company. Mm. I just got tired of trying to fix the same problems that people did not want to yeah. fix. The real problem. Yeah. They always wanted. Literally, I remember hearing that in my first year in Sandler. Oh, just give us the low hanging fruit, the, the easy stuff. 
And I'm thinking, you know what? Success isn't easy. You're trying to get shortcuts. And that's why all these blogs with five tips on this and seven ways, shortcuts or whatever it is, to seven tips to supercharge your prospecting. It doesn't work because you can't. There is no seven tips. There's hard work. And yeah, so this, for me, this comes back a little bit to, to understanding the profile of successful sellers, right? The one thing you can never give to people is a sense of curiosity. And I always try to tell a team that one of the things that I, like, when, how, how do you give an example of being curious about what's happening? And so, let's say back in the day when you were still visiting customers, which it doesn't really happen anymore <laughs> nowadays, but uh, I, would, I remember so well when I was younger as well, you walk into a company and whatever, you actually see the factory, right? You, you're going to a company, you say, what's happening there? What do these machines do? Ask anybody who's, who owns a business or is responsible for it. They, they will go mental. Oh man, I tell you, these machines, these are the only ones in Europe that actually can do that. And you'd be excited and they would be yeah. excited. And this kind of thing, that's very hard to replicate that in a call, right? Because you don't see their environment. You don't truly understand. So then you run the risk of asking them those questions. But that becomes like, again, that's, that's not a nice conversation. So the only way to tackle that is by being curious up front. So try to understand their industry, their life before you talk to them. So you actually can drop hints of, I do understand what you're doing. You have these specific machines, blah, 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 blah. I've seen that. What do they actually do? Mm. Why do we use them? What, what mm. makes the, whatever, right? And I think it's this whole aspect of being curious. Yeah, the, if I would have to show the option between more center training or more industry and persona training, I would always go for more industry and persona training for my teams because I know it will benefit them more and it will benefit the customer more. Mm. I had a meeting with 20 VPs and head of L&Ds a couple of weeks ago in Copenhagen. And I was like, I was worried, would they believe me as an, would they believe me? Am I expert enough for them? Because these people have been in, in, in the learning and development positions for 10, 20, 30 years. And here I am, like Johan Slaus, coming there with five, six years of learning expertise. <clears throat> I think I love it that, so I make effort every single day to understand their challenges and the business of learning and whatever. And in return, that these people are, they're, they're, there's a reason why they are VP of learning, right? Because they want to learn stuff. And they probably know that 90% of the stuff that, that I say, they know that. It's just always looking for that little diamond that they haven't heard of. Exactly to the story where I say a CEO wants to hear something they haven't heard before because they, they don't expect anything else. Why would I come there telling them a story that, you know, that they've never heard before? No, it's just going to be one or two little things. Like to your sender point, if you sit in a training, you probably pick up one thing and hopefully you use it and whatever. And that's the way it works in the sales conversation as well. So to your point of the challenge of sales, I'm not necessarily in the, in like a fan of one or the other because it's always a mix. I always, if our people ask me, oh, what sales methodology would you use in a company? It doesn't really matter. No. I just want good people that are curious, that understand their business, that follow a process because you can't deny it. Like sales is a process. And if you forget about certain stuff or you don't introduce certain aspects early enough in the sales cycle, you just make your life difficult, right? It makes the life of yourself and the customer so much easier. If you follow a process, you bring that person on that process with you. So from both Sites, you don't waste time, energy, or levels of commitment for that matter, right? If you don't make things clear up front and blah, blah. So you need to stick to the process, but on top of that, we're all human. 
that's where the difference will be made. How curious are you? Do you truly understand what's happening? In a way, that's conversational. When I talk to people in Copenhagen, it's conversation that I want. They don't want bullshit stories from me, how good we are, how fantastic the product is, that we solve everything. We don't solve everything. Not by far. Not a single company solves everything. And that's part of the fun of e-learning. There is a hundred ways of solving it. Like with sales training, when you were selling center, probably you can't fix everything. You fix something within the company and it needs to fit. And that's why they come to you and say, oh, we have a prospecting problem. Pipeline is down quarter after quarter. Paul, can you fix it? Like yeah. my directors would say, Jan, pipe is down quarter after quarter. Can you fix the pipe problem? You need to do more prospecting. No, that's not, you asked me something. What else have you asked? Have you asked anybody else in the company to solve this with me? Because if I just can solve the pipeline problem, I can fix it. But the pipe will not necessarily be better. <laughs> it will be more pipe, yeah. not more sales. And so these kind of things, are, yeah, that, that keeps, that's the part of sales that keeps on being fun, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm just curious, I have a, I guess, a professional interest in it. What did you learn from the meeting in, this, in, in Denmark when you, when you had so many heads of learning in a room? What are some of the challenges facing that industry in 2023? It's good you're not the first one to ask me, so that's... <laughs> so I, I think I learned two things. And people always say you have to have three, but I only have two. I think one is they all still expect impact from training. So no matter how effective e-learning can be, being asked the most successful learning they introduced in the past year, and this question was actually asked in that session, they all said face-to-face training. That's the only one that delivers impact, true impact, where being checked later on, surveys with the participants, they all say this made me change the way I do my job. Never the e-learning. Okay, that's one aspect. The other is... They are still not part of the decision-making units in company, mm. in the companies. So L&D, every company will say learning is important, it's strategic. Being asked in that group of 20 companies, which of those companies actually has a CLO, so as a chief learning officer, wow. zero. CHRO, yes, one. So that's, okay. I won't say the name, but... Okay. Yeah, no, that, that's I'll, interesting. That is really interesting because it sounds to me like a lot of companies then are just paying lip service when they talk about our employees are our most valuable asset. Yeah. Lip service, when you're not investing them at that level, when every other function is... It simple. means that all of them consistently had to look for approval to run their own side of L&D. Because traditionally, of course, the business is always asking for, okay, so the sales leader comes up to, to the L&D person and says, ah, you have a huge prospecting problem. I need some additional training to make them qualify better. Who can do it? Ah, oh, I know Paul Lennigan. He's based in Ireland. He's a great guy. <laughs> he can help me. But so they, they will act on demand rather than proactively designing learning programs. Even, okay, now people from Go1 are probably going to listen to this podcast and maybe you're not going to, record this part or send that but even in, in go one we are a learning company and in a year and a half time all i got from learning is mandatory learning compliance all the stuff that nowadays is necessary and sendler no other no other real learning programs although we sell individual learning paths we don't 
even eat our own is it eat our own dog food drink yep, our own yep, champagne yep. <laughs> that's it, yeah, yeah. so that's remarkable so it shows how difficult it is to truly become a company that embraces learning as a strategic element to be ahead of the game in three or five years time because that's what it will do i think in technology that's much more a given thing. I used to work for Pluralsight, and I love the fact that they were actually able, by assessing, because technology is more binary, right? You understand Java development or you don't, and somewhere in the middle you can assess that. And then you can assess a skill gap and you can address your training and make sure that your company, on a company level, you don't have any skill gaps in the technology that's going to bring your company mm. to, the, to the next level. Fantastic. And now we need to bring that element into the likes of sales and marketing or whatever right being able yeah. to really understand how important are these departments for my company hugely important how many money do we waste on those departments massive marketing oh let's try this hundreds of thousands of euros to google hundreds of thousands of euros to god knows what's the return on investment i don't really know what's the cost of one lead a couple of thousand dollars per lead are you joking that's not a return on investment and same with sales let's we need 15 people and then six months later eh, they don't really function let's yeah. bring it down to five it's massive amounts of money, all based on the fact that it's not thought properly through why mm. they need it and how, how to make that work. Yeah, yeah. you see, there's, and I think there's the, one of the problems with the soft side of training is that there's ego involvement. It's easy to admit to, I don't know how to upskill my employees in, say, Java, as an example. But it's harder to admit, I don't know how to train them or I don't know how to hire somebody with the right sales skills. It's, it's also true, I see it on the sales side. Nobody wants to put their hand up, or very few will put their hands up and say, I'm not good enough at prospecting. I need improvement. They don't, and that's one of the reasons why I think sales enablement exists, is to yeah. put these programs together and make them mandatory. You think about it. If, if people really, if reps really believed that a certain training was going to help them do their job better, make more money for themselves, and do it easier. It, you'd never have to make training mandatory, ever. They'd be signing up. They'd be saying, where do I sign? The only people who do that, and they're a very tiny percentage, this is my, just my experience, are people who are truly driven on self-improvement. And, and they have this internal script, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, which in itself is a little bit troublesome. It, 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 if it's not caught, it can lead to yeah self-flagellation and beating yourself up with when it's not appropriate but but it is interesting it's a really difficult industry which is why the problems the same problems keep arising that they have not been solved and they will not be solved and i see training companies out there trying every which way to do it including online e-learning doesn't work unless mm. it comes from the rep and unless they're willing to be vulnerable and role play and put themselves in situations that are uncomfortable, they're not going to learn, period. That's just no. my, what I, I, my experience of that. Yeah, and, and I know I'm, I'm the same myself. I, I know, I remember when I started doing Sandler first, the only thing that kept me going in it, the only thing was the fact I'd spent tens, literally 50,000 euros on a license and my wife, I had three kids and my wife didn't work outside the home. That was the only thing that if I didn't do it, we didn't have a house, didn't have a car, kids needed to be fed. And when it came to really pushing myself to get better at it, that was the only thing. I had no option. I had no way out. 
after spending 50,000 I couldn't just go do you know what this is tough I'll get a job couldn't do it and, uh, and that's why I think and maybe it's a European thing you try to get a rep here to work on a 100% commission not going to do it where in the States it's quite common or maybe a 20-80 split because they back themselves get, they get it they understand they see sales as a profession they see that they're always looking to invest in themselves and push themselves because they see it it's a different mentality and again, I know people Yeah, and not necessarily but... better or worse, right? I no, mean, it's a mentality. Uh, it's, yeah. If you have the right people that have intrinsic motivation, mm. uh, I don't think it really, it, it doesn't really matter whether yeah. you do 50-50 yeah. or 60-40 yeah. or 20 yeah. or whatever. It's and, the right and, levels of confidence. You're right. And the difficulty is in good times, they don't need it. The orders no. just come through. And in bad right. times, fear gets takes over and people keep their heads down. Nobody wants to say, I need help. So... No. <laughs> anyway, we didn't solve that today. I would like to ask you no. to, a few personal questions. I know we're pushing on time here. If you were to write a book, Johan, what would you write a book about? I just talked about this yesterday with my coach. <laughs> and actually, I've been trying to write a book now for the past few years. And, and I'm very much interested in the combination of... I'm, I do a lot of exercise and I love like the mental aspects of exercise. And I'm, I'm also interested in diets. And diets, I, I, if you meet a vegan, they would tell you they're vegan, right? So I'm a vegan, but for health reasons. And, mm. and so I'm, and I'm also, I wouldn't consider myself a true biohacker, but I, so I always try to figure out ways to improve my mental or physical state in ways that might look awkward, but actually give true benefits because it's science that's pushing it, right? It's not traditional just eat healthy and exercise a lot and you'll be fine no it's going beyond that but anyway to bring that together the kind of title the, the working title is for exercise because it's free exercise because i i think it only works like any habits if uh, you need to make it a habit in order to make it work right yeah. you, know, you can throw away all diet plans in the world because none of them work because it doesn't necessarily want you to make it a form of a habit. Yeah. It's just addressing, it's like addressing a low pipeline with a sender qualifying training, right? It just mm. temporarily it might work and people get enthusiastic and they might do a little bit better and then it falls down again. And this is a diet plan and this is going to the gym for, for six months and not seeing any results. And I truly believe in bringing it all together in just simple habits and it will address probably 70 or 80% of all the needs mm. in order to live a healthy life. And it took me a long time, right? And I'm not claiming that I'm there or that I'm super healthy, but most of the stuff that I do is based on habits and that makes it so enjoyable because there's no effort in it, right? Mm. And people always say, how can you be vegan for 12 years? Oh, it must be so difficult. And if you go to, no, it's not difficult because it's just my life. It's a habit. It's, mm. I know exactly what to make in the kitchen. I can know exactly how to do it. If I run, my body is totally used to it. I can do it three times a week, five times a week, one time a month, and my body is, it knows it, right? It's totally mm. programmed to run. It's totally broken to, to, to cycle. I take cold showers every day and people say, ah, oh, cold shower must be terrible. No, it's not because I do it every day. It's just a yeah. habit. And if you break the habits, that's when your life becomes difficult, like anything. Yeah. And do you live with a partner? Yes. And how, I'm just curious, how do you, do you both then have the same diet or are they different diets? Because that's the one thing I question mark I would have is that mm. my wife is, and she's a really good cook, that's her passion. And she'll experiment and it's different almost every day. 
that if I were to go, and, and I'm I, only recently I'm a convert to the whole plant-based. I'm, I'm not vegan, but I'm certainly plant-based. But I'm not in charge of the meals. And I would have to then go, and I don't, I'm probably making excuses here, right? Yeah. But it would be a whole separate <laughs> set where convenience is I go home and basically I have what she's having. Simple as, because that's my life. It makes my life easier. And by the way, she's, because she's a good cook, the ingredients are all fresh and so on. Yes, it's not vegan. It's not even vegetarian, but I know it's good. Yeah. Ah, look, again, I'm not, this is the whole thing. I'm not, a, I'm not somebody who ever tries to convince anybody to convert to a vegan or let's say plant-based diet, because that's mm. the same for me. But my partner made the decision herself because I am the cook. I, 90% ah. of the time, I cook the meals in the house. And she said, listen, I'm not going to sit in front of you with a steak if you eat your vegetables and, and your and your other stuff. So I take what you make and, yeah. uh, and that's as easy as that. Also in restaurants, right? You would not say, I have the fish and I'll let you have the veggies. Yeah, in that sense, it's it's easy. And I think yeah. I had a discussion with my son about it not so long ago and he said, uh, actually my partner asked, you know, so Jack, what do you remember from your youth as being difficult with your father? He made, he forced me into eating vegan stuff. <laughs> So this is a guy now who's 18 and he goes six times a week to the gym and he wants protein, right? So you can't live without the chicken and whatever. And of course, I'm, I said, to your point, I don't mind him eating chicken. I mind him eating the cheap chicken from the supermarket. Yes. If you do it, eat good stuff, even less, because it's better for your body and, it, and you will benefit from it yeah. in the end if you just make the, the, the good choices and not the, the easy, cheap choices. Like with so many things in life. Yeah, for okay. sure, for sure. Final question for you, Johan. When your time on this planet is done, how do you want to be remembered? I, it's always a tough question, but I think it comes back to what we talked about earlier. I want to be remembered for my interest in other people, right? The fact that I want to spend time with them, that I'm genuinely interested in other people and what's moving them and where I can help a hand that I would. I think the one thing I still have to, probably have to learn is actually sometimes ask for more help myself because you're so consciously available to maybe to help other people. But that would be a nice way to be remembered, not yeah. for my successes as a seller or my companies or whatever millions I haven't made, by the way, just as somebody who was fun with to hang out with. And this is the way, especially with my kids, right? Or the people close to me. I hope they, they enjoyed spending time with me. Johan Slos, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks so much for, uh, for being part of it.